You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Chad, Pastor Chad, if you wish. Uh, I'm one of the associate pastors here at LifePoint. And if you watched the video this week, you know we're going to be in Hebrews 5. Now, Hebrews 5 is going to introduce a guy that's going to come up again in Hebrews 7. He's mentioned a few times in the Bible, but he is uh, full of intrigue, and he's actually a really cool uh, fellow from the Bible. So open up your Bibles to Hebrews 5. We're going to go through verses 1 through 10. I'll mention 11 through 14 a little bit, but we're going to mainly stay in verses 1 through 10. Let's pray. Father, this is, this is your word for us. Father, soften hearts, open ears, spark curiosity in your word. Ignite the desire to go deeper and learn more. Send your Holy Spirit to minister to us and open our minds. Father, empty me of every little bit that is me and fill me with your spirit. It is in Jesus' name. Amen. So a special welcome to those of you watching online. Uh, Again, welcome. If you want to comment on anything, you can comment in the comment section on YouTube or on Facebook. We have pastors and staff watching that. So, and for those of you who are here, I'm glad I used deodorant today. Um, so, the writer of Hebrews, up to this point, especially in chapter 5, is stressing the importance of Jesus. And today we're going to unpack a role that Jesus fills that some of us may not be too familiar with. So let's read. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 1, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And he takes this honor, and he no one takes this honor on himself, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be, the, to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So now, there are some big theological themes Hebrews is full of them. And truthfully, in, in praying and deciding which direction to go with Hebrews 5, it was, it was hard because there's a lot here. Studied a whole lot about Melchizedek and who this guy is, and we're going to unpack some of that. Hebrews is the section of Scripture that references the Old Testament the most in the, from the New Testament. There's a lot in here. It was for a, a Jewish Christian audience. We've been in it for months now. But we're going to unpack a role known as the high priest. For most of us, the high priest, understanding who the Jewish high priest was and what his role was, most of us have no idea, right? Because, I mean, let's face it, we don't have priests, and we sure as heck don't have a high priest, right? Or do we? 
So what did the high priest do? Who was he? So the high priest, as the Bible says here, it wasn't somebody who was elected. It wasn't somebody who said, oh, I want to be high priest. I'm going to run for office and the people are going to elect me. It was somebody called by God. And the high priest, other than, different than regular priests in Jewish times, had a very specific role. In the temple, you had the temple, the bigger temple, and in the center, center, center of the temple, you had the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the high priest would go and sit in the very presence of God himself. And he was the only person allowed to do that. And he could only do it, and he usually only did it during a very specific time of year that we know today is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. There's a very specific time of year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sit in the presence of God, offer sacrifices for all sorts of different things, especially for the forgiveness of sins. He was different. It wasn't just by nature of birth, like with the Levitical priesthood, my son would become the next high priest or the next priest, and his son would become the next priest, etc., etc., The high priest was different, and we're going to talk specifically about one high priest, Melchizedek, and who he is and what it means. He serves as a mediator between God and his people. Why? Why do we need need a mediator between us and God? Sin. The word is sin. A lot of pastors like to gloss over sin, but sin is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And it was such a big deal for the Jews that they had to anoint and, serve and, and have a special high priest was who would make an offering and, and a blood offering before even going into the Holy of Holies. He would have to make himself clean before he could even go in to begin to offer sacrifices. This is a system that was put in place going back to Cain and Abel, offering sacrifice, giving God the first fruits, the best, the most unblemished, the most perfect thing we have to offer. There are five main types of sacrifices that the high priest would offer. And as, I'm list, as I list these, and we talk about what they were and what they were for, pay attention to who, who we're talking about. There was a burnt offering, which signifies the propitiation for sin, surrender, and devotion to God. Propitiation is an exchange. I'm going to offer the God this burnt offering in exchange for my sin. A grain offering, first fruits thanksgiving, a giving of the best, the the first grain, the first harvest, whatever it is, oil, whatever it is, it's the first off the top. There's a peace offering, which signifies fellowship with God, asking God to restore communion. All of those are voluntary offerings. The guilt offering is offered by somebody who committed an offense to another or desecrated something holy. This is mandatory. The sin offering, also mandatory, is for anyone who sinned or was considered unclean. This is the the offering of purification, and this was done with blood. In all situations, with all of these offerings... The animal that was brought or the sacrifice that was brought had to be the best, the most perfect, the most beautiful, the choicest lamb, the choicest bull. It wasn't the leftovers. 
It wasn't, well, I'm going to do what I want with my stuff, and then I'll give God, you know, whatever I have left. It was the best. It was the first. It was the biggest, the cleanest. And in fact, the high priest would examine these uh, offerings, and if it wasn't good enough, he would turn it away. No, no, that one has a, a spot. It's not unblemished. Bring me another one. And they were offering these sacrifices to the Lord because it's all they had. The high priest would take these things and he would, he would act as a mediator. But not only was he a high priest in, in that he was a mediator and he would receive sacrifices and truthfully he would be able to keep in some situations something of the sacrifice that was left over. They would eat it. They would use it to support the temple, whatever reason. But here in verses 2 through 5, it says that he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. What the writer of Hebrews here is telling us is that the high priest in this situation was still a sinner. He was still unrighteous in his own standing. But he was as close as he could get. He was called. He was specific. But he was compassionate, and he had to be compassionate because he had to understand that his sin was just as bad as anybody else's. He was a sinner just like anybody else he was offering sacrifice for. I love that he has to deal with the ignorant gently because if you jump forward to verse 11, and if you read through 11 to 14, um, the writer of Hebrews is not dealing gently with these people. <laughs> In fact, the writer of Hebrews is being very stern to those who should know better. Notice it says the high priest has to be compassionate and gentle to those who are ignorant of the truth. Be gentle with them. Be kind. Be understanding. But for those of you who know better, we're not going to go into 11 through 14, but I encourage you to read it yourself because, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to eat a steak up here and drink some milk, but no. Um, again, the calling of the, the, the high priest was not something that was voted on. Aaron was one of the high priests. And so there's this, this, this job description. It says he has to be compassionate. It doesn't say he has to be a scholar. It says he has to be someone who knows he's a sinner, not someone perfect. We can't, we can't miss that. This is still a man. This is still a human being, fallen, broken, imperfect, a sinner, unrighteous in his own right. Yet he is able, through, through, through submission and obedience, as obedient as you possibly could be, to step into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God himself. He was called, most of all, to be compassionate and understanding. So it makes sense when we get to verse 5 says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, and today I have become your father. What this is, is not Jesus saying, ooh, pick me, pick me, pick me. It's our heavenly father saying, I'm going to send you down there. I'm calling you. I'm commanding you. Because they need a perfect high priest. This is referencing back to Psalm 2. 
This is where it's the call on Jesus' life to become an incarnate, to come to earth and begin his ministry as a propitiation for our sins. See, all the offerings that were offered by the high priest are fulfilled in one man, Jesus, the first, the only begotten Son of God, the perfect, unstained Lamb. He never sinned, and it had to be that way. And it says he's a priest forever, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, knowing who I am and, and my desire um, and how I teach, I could literally sit, sit up here and talk about Melchizedek for probably two hours because he is fascinating. And there are so many different things. He is the guy that is mentioned in the Bible like three times. Four if you include Hebrews 5 and 7. So who is he? There's a lot of questions about who Melchizedek is. Uh, we have some friends in the Mormon church who really take it off into a different tangent. But the, the, the common uh, uh, Christian scholarly and Jewish scholarly opinions of who Melchizedek was comes down to about three different things. One, that he was a symbol or representation, representation of Messiah, of Christ. That, that this Melchizedek, this, this high priest Melchizedek, that the Messiah is going to look like him. He's going to be nearly perfect. He's going to be great. The other opinion is that it was called a Christophany or a theophany, which is an appearance of God in flesh. That he was actually Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus before his ministry. Not just a symbol, not just an example of who Jesus would be or who Messiah would be, but him, Jesus himself. The third most popular actually is, is held by the Jews. This one to me is the most interesting. And I spent all week, the guys, Nathan's on his head because I spent all week talking about this. They believe, and truthfully, I think this, this holds a lot of water, that Melchizedek is actually Shem. Shem is the son of Noah, one of the sons. Shem, Ham, Japheth are the sons of Noah. And that the great high priest, the first high priest, was Noah's son. Noah, Shem is the father of the Shemites, also known as the Semites, the Hebrew people. From Shem comes all the Hebrew people genealogically. Okay, this kind of makes sense that this, this great, this first great high priest, Melchizedek, could have actually been Shem. Well, why? Because we know that this high priest, Abraham offers him a tithe in, in, in Genesis 14. Abraham offers him a tithe. Well, why would Abraham do that? Well, if he's Shem, he's technically Abraham's great-grandfather. He wasn't elected he was called by God. How do we know he was called by God? Well, because Noah and his sons and their wives are the only people righteous enough on earth to survive the flood. So Shem is obviously somebody special. He orally spreads the traditions. He lives for about 400 years after the flood. And this is a time when God said, your days are going to be numbered to 125. So this guy, who they write about, said this guy doesn't have a mother, he doesn't have a father. Why? Imagine somebody 400 years old sitting right here. We would all be like, whoa, this guy is amazing. Who is this guy? He's 400 years old. Some might even think he's immortal, which he wasn't. But he passed on, again, I mentioned Cain and Abel offering a sacrifice. Noah passed on to his sons 
this process of offering a sacrifice to please the Lord. So it kind of makes sense that Melchizedek would be Shem. Now, again, I could go on for this for like hours because I did it all week. But um, so let's, uh, I'm going to dig into what, what does Melchizedek mean? Why does that name come? Why don't we just call him Shem? Um, well, Melchizedek is actually a combination of two Hebrew words, meaning king of righteousness. And we know from the story in Genesis that he is the king of righteousness. He is the high priest. So he's the high priest and a king from the town of Salem, known as Jerusalem today. Salem being of the same root word as shalom. So wait for it. Melchizedek was the great high priest and king of righteousness and peace. Sound like anybody else? The difference was Melchizedek was fully human. He was not divine at all. He was really old, but he was not divine. What's interesting, I think, is since the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD-ish, the Jews don't have a high priest anymore. Yet they deny Christ. I don't know. But they don't have a high priest anymore. Verses 7 through 9, this is, this, is, this is the core of what the writer of Hebrews 5 is talking about. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus is the greatest high priest the greatest king, the best priest, the best king. His suffering is the greatest. His sacrifice was the greatest. He is our compassionate and understanding king, and great is our salvation in him. Amen? I'm going to read that again. This is what the writer is talking about. His suffering is the greatest. His sacrifice was the greatest. He is our unbelievably compassionate and understanding king. And great is our salvation in him. His time on earth was full of prayer. Now imagine, they, they talk about this section, most scholars believe this is referencing back to Jesus' time in Gethsemane, when he's praying so hard that he sweats blood. God listened. Why? Because of reverent submission, because of obedience. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Wait, wait, hold on a second. But, but he was fully man and fully God. How could he learn anything? I'm going to blow your minds right here. Before Jesus was incarnate, there is something God didn't know. Well, blasphemy. God didn't know how to be obedient. Everyone and everything is obedient to him. He is obedient to no one and no thing. But once God came as a man... In his fully human nature, he understood obedience. This is, to me, this is so unbelievably miraculous that John 3.16, is, is, there's so much there. That God loved us so much that he would submit himself as a human to learn obedience. So he could be the unblemished, fully perfect, and greatest sacrifice for our sins. How did he learn obedience? Through his suffering. Through his suffering. 
Jonathan Edwards, who's a theologian and pastor, said this. This was the greatest act of obedience that Christ was to perform. He prays for strength and help that his poor, feeble human nature might be supported, that he might not fail in this great trial, that he might not sink and be swallowed up, and his strength so overcome that he should not hold out and finish the appointed obedience. He was afraid lest his poor and feeble strength should be overcome, and that he should fail in so great a trial that he should be swallowed up by that death he was to die, and so should not be saved from death. Jonathan Edwards calls that section Christ's agony. His agony. The writer of Hebrews says, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Don't gloss over that. This is Jesus probably on his face crying out for help because he was afraid. But he was obedient. He knew he was going to do what he was going to do, but he was afraid. Not that he would fail, but his human nature wouldn't be sufficient enough. He needed God to help him in his suffering. But he had every faith, and he knew fully God would. So what is this for us? Jesus' time of suffering was appointed by God. I'm calling you son. You're going to go down there. You're going to suffer. You're going to experience everything they have to experience. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself of his status so he could become a bondservant for man. This is Jesus. You're going to go down there. You're not going to be a king. You're not going to be the high priest yet. You're going to be a submission to me and to them. What? What? For God so loved the world. Don't gloss over it. Most of us have it memorized. But there's a lot there. He feels our suffering. God appoints a time for our suffering sometimes too. Now I'll be fully, aware, uh, fully honest with you and say not all of our suffering is from God. Right? I knew better on Thanksgiving to eat all the stuff that I ate. Especially all the stuff with gluten in it because I have a sensitivity. Right? That suffering brought on a few hours later was through my own stupidity. <laughs> right? That wasn't an appointed time of suffering from God. It was, hey, you ate too much. Gluttony is a sin. Remember? Um, anyway, so... <laughs> Sometimes, though, we go through a time of suffering, appointed by and anointed by God, and he promises us that he'll walk alongside us. Jesus experienced it. He knows what we're going through, and he will never abandon us. But what he promises in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, Acts 14, Romans 8, he promises us that we're going to suffer. Promises us. 1 Thessalonians says, Christ... Christians are appointed to affliction, Acts 14, 22. It is through many hardships we are able to enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 17. He suffered for us, but we share in his suffering. As we go through times of trial and suffering, the writer of James says, consider it pure joy. Elsewhere in Romans, it says that our suffering leads to perseverance, which develops character in us. All too often, we try, and I read an article this week, again, about Denmark and their mission against Down syndrome by, through 100% abortion. 
because they could suffer. They also bring joy. And somehow our world has said, suffering is bad. All suffering is bad. You don't want to have to suffer. You don't need any pain. And there are pastors and preachers who get up and say, if you give your life to Christ, all that goes away. Everything is great. Everything is hunky-dory. That's not what the Bible says. What it says is we're going to suffer. There are times of suffering that we're appointed to go through. And no matter what our suffering, even if it's caused by our own stupidity, Jesus is there with us as our high priest, as the mediator, as our king. He will walk alongside us because he knows what it means for humans to suffer. His suffering was the greatest offering of the best, most unblemished lamb possible. It is for our salvation that he has been called to be the high priest, to suffer and die an agonizing death on our behalf. The high priests of the Jewish times didn't do that. It wasn't his own blood he was shedding. It was the blood of another animal. But we needed more. Though he, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, that doesn't mean obey first and then he'll consider giving you salvation. In John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, keep my commands. Not keep my commands and I'll think about loving you. Right? And that's where the world gets it twisted. They think that the message of Jesus is get yourself right and get everything perfect and then come to me. No. No, the message of Scripture is, and the message of the gospel is, there's nothing you can do. You are not unblemished. You're all sinful. You're not righteous. We all sin, every single one of us. And once and for all, he was anointed the high priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. He filled the role of priest, king, sacrifice, savior, all at once. Historically speaking, no other human being in history has met these criteria according to Jewish history. No human being. At all points, from Psalm 110 to the end of Psalms, all of it points to Jesus himself. I'm going to call the band out as I close. None of us is here by accident. If you walked in here this morning and I do see some faces that I don't recognize, thinking, meh, I'll try it out. I haven't been to church in a long time. Why not? We are called into submission and obedience to Christ, who simply says, if you love me, keep my commands. Who simply says, if you repent and call on my name as Lord, all is forgiven. All is forgiven for your past, all is forgiven for the present, and all is forgiven for the future. 
He is our mediator. He is the great high priest between us and God who mediates on our behalf and wants nothing but our good. He doesn't say obey me or else. He says obey me and you get eternal heaven. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, if you have never considered the obedience to Christ and what that means, if you've never thought of the reward on the other side of this life that comes through following Jesus, we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what the next 30 minutes brings. We have no idea. You do not have to have it all figured out. You do not have to have all the answers. You do not have to be good to give your life to Christ. If you would pray with me. Father, we, we need you. We are broken. We are sinful. We, we are blemished. You gave your son the perfect, unblemished, beautiful lamb to suffer a horrible and agonizing death. He gave us an example to pray for strength in all things, and you will hear. We are called to remember his blood and his body. And right now in this room, if you have never asked Jesus into your life, right now, repent, acknowledge your sin before God, and call on him as Savior. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we go into communion, if you haven't gotten the elements yet, there's more back on the table. At LifePoint, communion is a time of remembrance. It's a time to focus our lives on who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and what he did for us. That he voluntarily went to the cross. All that's required if to partake in communion is that you be a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. On the day Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he sat with his closest friends, his disciples, his followers, and said, every time you guys get together, this is Passover, you're going to do this again, I promise. Every time you guys get together, I want you to break bread and remember my body broken, utterly broken for you. Would you eat the bread?
Jesus then took a cup. He thanked God. He thanked God knowing what this cup symbolizes. The pouring out of his blood for the propitiation, for an exchange for our sin. Do this in remembrance of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for everything from a warm cup of coffee to a car, to a job, to a house, to peace in our trials and sufferings. In Jesus' name, amen.